Could not agree more. Chris Hedges, thank you very, very much for your time, for your insights. And I know that my audience appreciates it as much as I do. And to all of you, I look forward to speaking with you again next week. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The time now is 7 p.m. Stay tuned for Off the Hook coming up. The toll-free number you have dialed has been disconnected. No further information is available about this number. 074T. We're sorry. The number you have reached, 99.5 WBAI, is now off the hook. program is off the hook. Emmanuel Goldstein here with you on this Wednesday evening, joined tonight by Kyle. Right here. There you are. Okay. And um, out there in Skype land, I believe I see Rob T. Firefly. Good evening. And uh, over there is Gila. Good evening. And I believe we also have Alex. Good evening. Okay. Everyone is uh, is with us. We're going to have a special guest join us in a, in a moment. Uh, but first, I just wanted to uh, check in with everybody and see uh, how, how their week has gone. A programming reminder, we will not be on next week. So this is the last show of February. Next show will be in March. Uh, we are on at 8 o'clock tonight on YouTube for overtime. So you can join us there. You can call us and um, uh, participate in the conversation as well. Um, 
Any uh, any updates from people on on things we've talked about over the past couple of weeks? I have a couple of things. Um, our intelligence is still not artificial. We're using the natural kind. Okay. Apart from that quip, does anybody have any any uh, uh, the stories? Okay. Well, I've, I've um, something interesting here. Uh, we we reported on the Bing uh, controversy last week. The uh, Bing getting all bent out of shape and um, uh, getting accusatory, hostile. Um, well, in response to that, uh, Microsoft is now limiting conversations with its new chatbot in the Bing search engine to only five questions per session and 50 questions per day. Yeah, <laughs> they did that in short order. Um, a, um, uh, they basically... Um, they expected their chatbot to sometimes respond inaccurately, and it built in measures to protect against people who try to make the chatbot behave strangely or say harmful things. Uh, still, early users who had open-ended personal conversations with the chatbot found its responses unusual, sometimes creepy. Uh, now people will be prompted to begin a new session after they ask five questions and the chatbot answers five times. Uh, very, very long uh, chat sessions can confuse the underlying chat model, Microsoft said on Friday. Uh, last Wednesday, the company wrote in a blog post that it didn't fully envision people using the chatbot for more general discovery of the world and for social entertainment. Really? You didn't you didn't envision that, huh? Uh, the chatbot became repetitive, sometimes testy in long conversations. Uh, Microsoft said its data showed that about 1% of conversations with the chatbot had more than 50 messages. Uh, it said it would consider increasing the limits on questions in the future. The company is also looking at adding tools to give users more control over the tone of the chatbot. I'm very disappointed because I was looking forward to having an extended conversation uh, with the Bing chatbot over the weekend and uh, was going to report back for tonight's show. But, uh, yeah, I guess this is why we can't have good things. I think it's almost a challenge, honestly, to figure out what to say in five questions to really get it to say or do something ridiculous. Like, where's the turning point where you can really, I don't know of another word for zets, but what's a, a word you can really like, where you can really zets Sydney to a point where Sydney will react oddly. Honestly, it's a, it's a challenge that I think you could really rise to. Yeah, and Sydney, of course, is the... Um, uh, the uh actual name of the Bing chatbot, which apparently was one of the things that triggered it to uh, get testy if you if you referred to the chatbot as Sydney. Didn't like that at all. So, um, yeah, Alex. You know, Gila brings up an interesting point, too. So I, I think we touched on this very briefly last week, but, you know, there is this entirely new generation of uh, occupations that are arising around the use of artificial intelligence, and one of those is, is the, the AI prompter somebody who asks the right questions of an artificial intelligence in order to generate the right type of response in the right fashion and the right style. And I think to do it iteratively, it's, it's a form of, in a, in a weird sense, it kind of reminds me a bit of like the Socratic method in law school and where you know, every question is going to come back you know, with an answer and then another question, another question. Um, and so it, it's just kind of bizarre to me that, there's an entirely new occupation just just for prompting, just for questioning of these types of artificial intelligence. Absolutely. Go ahead, Kyle. This story strikes me as a uh, uh, 
benefit solely to the uh, the way that the coverage of this technology is uh, framed. You know, like it benefits their PR um, um, motivations. I think I don't know who this helps. Like people are asking it what they're asking it, and yes, they're alarmed. But um, I, I, I th- are they protecting? us or are they protecting their technology from being overwhelmed by us or does the it probably doesn't care oh, about they're, us. they're afraid of being made to look like fools yeah so it <laughs> seems like they don't want like weird stuff being talked about as much it seems that that is more the the impact of these kinds of measures and like you're describing well, we did spend about 25 minutes talking we, about it last i week. think along with everyone else uh-huh. but there was a lot of marveling at it and uh well, there's a bit of fear as well. Uh, yes, go ahead, Rob. Yeah, um, that's that's um, much uh, much what I was thinking. Is that this is it seems like a distinctly Microsoft response to the fact that people are engaging this thing in um, these long conversations and getting all this crazy stuff out of it, and Microsoft's response is to uh, lasso the thing back and uh, limit the amount of questions you're you're allowed, rather than like taking a deeper look at why it's giving these responses, what uh, algorithms are flipping around like this, and why people are asking it the things they're asking. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not just um, the chatbots. It's also the material that uh, AI is is um, producing. And this has caused uh, a bit of a problem in the publishing world. Uh, in fact, uh, one of our um, um, fellow publishers is a science fiction magazine called Clark's World. You might have heard of it. Uh, in fact, um, we've we've been uh, following um, part of their saga because of the uh, uh, the latest Amazon crisis, the, the Kindle crisis that um, we've made reference to in our most recent the most recent issue of Twenty Six Hundred, but also uh, small publishers everywhere being affected by the fact that um, uh, Amazon has decided to stop supporting uh, independent magazines through the Kindle, at least in the way that they have been doing, and it's um, it, it's likely to threaten the existence of many publishers. That's a topic for another show. Uh, we simply don't have time to get into that right now. Uh, but Clark's World is in the news for a different reason, uh, because um, they have closed their submissions. In fact, uh, if you if you um, uh, look at Neil Clark's uh, Twitter thread, you'll see that um, he has said submissions are currently closed. It shouldn't be hard to guess why. <laughs> Clark's World is uh, considered one of the top sci-fi and fantasy literary publications. They've won several Hugo Awards. Uh, they regularly uh, ban a small number of people from submitting works each month, mostly for alleged plagiarism. Uh, as of Monday, it had banned more than 500 accounts this month. Uh, the magazine explicitly prohibits stories written, co-written, or assisted by AI. Uh, they've been on top of this for a while, I guess. Uh, the latest deluge of machine-written submissions appeared to come from individuals outside the sci-fi and fantasy community. Uh, he blamed the flood on people trying to make money from a side hustle of selling AI-generated content. Uh, and, um, yeah, that's something that I think every publisher is going to have to worry about. Now, uh, 2600, uh, we, we don't pay the writers. We, we uh, uh, give things, um, merchandise to them in, in exchange. So, um, you know, I, I think in, in our case... It won't be people trying to make a buck out of uh, using AI, but it will be um, um, people who um, I don't know. I like to think that um, the 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 um, the shame of having your name attached to something that's not real uh, would be enough to discourage people from doing that. But also, you know, it's not it's not that difficult to tell when something is written by AI if you read it if you read it carefully, and um, 
that's what I hope we do. And I, uh, it, it, it's going to be interesting, though, not just for small publishers, for big publishers as well, for book publishers, uh, as as artificial intelligence gets more and more sophisticated. It's going to be really, really hard to tell the difference. It really is. Yeah, we're we're at an interesting point right now where, um, yeah, this uh, the the AI generated text it's crunching everything out there and spitting out a result, and you can kind of tell when you're reading it. There's a distinct sort of lack of uh, human voice of human spirit behind what you're reading, and especially in things like a sci-fi story or even the sorts of things that uh, 2600 publishes, I think that depends a great deal um, on there being some some actual point being communicated by a person, um, some actual measure of uh, human creativity, human heart, um, for, for lack of a better term. And so, yeah, that's not easy for the AI to fake at this point. Will it remain that way? Probably not. But uh, it's we we're, we're starting to open our eyes to the possibilities. I think the the submission process will transform in light of this, and maybe um, examples like that are an indicator just mm-hmm. basically of taking a pause where you ordinarily might accept uh, things in, in mass and in an automated way and, and less supervised ways, but people are taking a, a second look. As you read, many already have policies um, that are based more on like an honor and a, a, um, a um, trust uh, 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 transaction and and um, and sort of pride thing. So th- there's a lot um, th- that um, writers and uh, publishers, I think, are going to be navigating together. Well, it's going to be harder to trust people that you don't already know, that aren't known entities. So if somebody is a writer that has written things before, um, you tend to believe that they're going to continue writing on their own without the help of artificial intelligence. But a new writer, it's going to be particularly hard for them. They're, they're going to have to prove that they're not a computer, and it's going to be more difficult than, than finding the traffic lights. Uh, but get this. I, I just saw this in um, in, in this particular uh, story about this. Um, did you know there are more than 200 books on Amazon right now that attribute authorship to ChatGPT? Yes, they're proud of it. And since Amazon pretty much lets anyone do whatever they want, um, they're they're selling these books. Uh, Some have even started coaching aspiring authors on how to use ChatGPT as a um, uh, creative writing partner. But (laughs) this this isn't just affecting um, uh, magazines like uh, Clark's World. Uh, Several academic journals, uh, including Science and Nature, have instituted policies restricting the use of chat GPT after the technology was listed as an author on papers. Any attribution of authorship carries with it accountability for the work, and AI tools cannot take such responsibility, Nature's editors wrote in a post outlining their policy. Um, yeah, and uh, those policies will probably become more common because more avenues to generate text via AI are on the way. Uh, users recently started getting access to Google's BARD, has anyone played with Bard yet? No? Uh, Microsoft's Bing chatbot, as we've mentioned, and uh, Chinese tech giant Baidu is expected to release a, um, uh, another bot called Ernie soon. Ernie, I like that one. Um, yeah, so the world is changing. The world is really changing fast and kind of in a, in a scary way. Uh, yes, Alex? You know, I've, um, as we've talked about a bit on the show, you know, I started teaching recently over at King's College in London. I've been going through dissertation outlines from the students uh, over the last couple of weeks. And I have to say, I haven't seen anything that, to me, 
looks like it was generated by some kind of artificial intelligence. I, um, I really don't. I'm, I feel like uh, at least our students are scared enough of, of using that kind of thing and being detected that, uh, that they haven't done it yet. But um, then again, I'm only oh, grading Oh, Alex, <laughs> you poor fool. You don't know, do you? They're Maybe. so much more sophisticated than you give them credit for. Uh, you're probably right. You're probably right. Over there in England right now, they are rolling on the floor. <laughs> but no, it's great. So. every every professor must be must be living in in complete fear of this. You know, it's um, yeah. you know, and there's a lot of guides out there that will you know show you how you can detect uh, you know use of ChatGPT, and it, it very often attributes quotes wrong or gets certain positions wrong uh, when you're attributing quotes. So that you know. Those sort of uh, secondary sources. Yeah, but you know what, Alex? I, I use one of those tools. I used one of those tools um, a couple of weeks ago that, that purported to uh, uh, tell you if something was created by artificial intelligence. And I, I fed our latest editorial into it. And it said it was written by a robot. It said it was artificial intelligence. You yeah. know, I wrote that myself. I, I, am I artificial? Is this Westworld? What, what's going on here? Uh, well. I So I... You know, I, I can't really trust those those uh, those programs, those those solutions yet. Well, we've always said your writing is very formulaic. You need to vary it up a little bit. Wait, who's we? Yeah, uh, the the uh, Borg entity, I guess. Is, uh, <laughs> That's the, right. The, 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 the collective. Hey, uh, so we have some activity in the Supreme Court this week. Um, yeah, uh, concerning something we've talked about in the past, known as Section 230, 1996 law that promotes free speech online. Um, according to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, uh, because users rely on online intermediaries as vehicles for their speech, they can communicate to large audiences without needing financial resources or technical know-how to distribute their own speech. Section 230 plays a critical role in enabling online uh, by speech by generally ensuring that those intermediaries are not uh, legally responsible for what is said by others. Section 230's reach is broad. It protects users as well as small blogs and websites, uh, in addition to giants like Twitter and Google and any other service that provides a forum for others to express themselves online. Courts have repeatedly ruled that Section 230 bars lawsuits against users and services for sharing or hosting content created by others, whether by forwarding by um, email, uh, hosting online reviews, or reposting photos or videos that others find objectionable. Section 230 also protects the curation of online speech, giving intermediaries the legal breathing room to decide what type of user expression they will host and to also take steps to moderate content as they see fit. But if the plaintiffs in uh, the two cases um, uh, being uh, heard this week, uh, Gonzalez versus Google, uh, yesterday, uh, Twitter versus Tamanet on, uh, that was today. Um, if the plaintiffs in these cases convinced the court to narrow the legal interpretation of Section 230 and increase platforms' legal exposure for generally knowing harmful material is present on their services, the significant protections that Congress envisioned in enacting this law would be drastically eroded. Many online intermediaries would intensively filter and censor user speech. Others may simply not host user content at all, and new online forums may not even get off the ground. David Green is a senior staff attorney and civil liberties uh, director over at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. He joins us tonight. David, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, can you give us an update as to what happened this week in the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, the, the cases were argued uh, uh, yesterday and and this morning, and 
Um, I'm I'm not generally one to make predictions based on cases, uh, based just on the arguments themselves. I think it's be really very difficult to figure out where the court's going to go. And I think that may be especially true uh, with with these cases. I um, I you know I think those of us who to recognize Section 230 as being a really vital part of the architecture of the modern internet were generally pleased <laughs> with the way yesterday's argument went in that it, that it didn't seem like like any of the justices didn't indicate by their questions that they were inclined to throw the whole thing out um at the same time they had they had some very good questions about whether it has been properly interpreted um so we don't know what's going to happen and and i think even today's argument which wasn't really about section 230 directly but was about when websites can be liable for what users do on their sites, I, I think was, again, a little bit less revealing in terms of trying to figure out which way the justices are going to go. You know, I, I, I saw I saw a quote today from uh, Justice uh, Elena Kagan. Um, this is pretty incredible. Uh, she said, we're a court that really doesn't know about these things. These are not like the nine greatest experts on the Internet, referring to the Supreme Court. I thought that was incredibly honest. Um, but also, um, does that, does that cause you concern or relief? No, no, I, I, I well, it, it got a big laugh, uh, during the hearing yesterday, which is always sort of, you know, breaks the tension a bit at, at Supreme Court arguments. I think it's absolutely, it's absolutely correct, obviously. I mean, it's, we don't put tech experts on, on the court. We also, you know, you don't really expect the justice to be experts in lots of things, um, but we expect them to be people who can uh, you consider information provided by experts and sort through it and, and make good decisions. So uh, it, it was a nice recognition of, of the fact that, you know, that, that they don't, they're not going to understand the technology to the extent that technologists understand it, you know, and really inviting the lawyers, like, how do you explain this to a way, us to a way that, that we can understand and make sure we, we make the right decision. So, but I, I was wondering, and I heard that how, for how long she was saving that line. I mean, they've considered lots of technology cases over the years, and she'd saved it, you know, <laughs> for yesterday's hearing. So. Wow. Yes, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, David, and w- welcome to the show. I think this is your, your first time on WBAI, right? We've had many of your colleagues on from the, the EFF, but, um, you know, w- welcome to, uh, and I believe that you're a professor as well, right? You teach for, uh, First Amendment law, is that right, at, at San Francisco, University of San yes, Francisco? Yes, I do. I, I teach a First Amendment class at uh, University of San Francisco Law School, yeah. Fantastic. Well, w- welcome to the to the home of FCC versus Pacifica, and uh, we're we're glad to have you here. The, um, the what I wanted to get into with you here is you know the facts of these cases, you know, and and Google and and Gonzalez v. Google in particular. Do you want to you know let our listeners know, you know in in what context this case arose? Because it to me, I think it it's really fascinating. I mean, the Section two thirty. Issues are are obviously really heavy. They're very important to our listener base. They're very important to the internet and 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 how it evolves. But you know, this Google v. Gonzalez case, you know, arose in the context of terrorism. So could you? Yeah. So both of the cases, uh, both the, the Google case, which was Google versus Gonzalez, or Gonzalez versus Google, uh, which was heard on Tuesday, and then Twitter versus Tamna, which was heard this morning. 
both arise out of uh, both examine the question ultimately of to what extent can online services be liable for terrorism attacks uh, to, and, and the allegations are that the terrorists use the online services for planning or to meet each other or to recruit cohorts um, or things uh, or things like that. Um, Gonzalez versus Google. And, and these things are very tragic. Right? I mean, the, the incidents that happened are tragic. People were, were murdered. Um, and you know, it's, so it's as much light as we make about you know, some of the issues involved. These are, these are you know, awful tragedies at the heart of these things. Now, Gonzalez uh, was a victim of the um, Paris uh, nightclub um, Paris nightclub shooting. And the allegation there in that case is that um, YouTube assisted in the recruitment of terrorists by promoting to certain users uh, videos of the of the uh, of the organizers of the terrorist uh, organizers, um, and and so that was that was the that was the allegation there in the in the Twitter versus Tamna case, which is uh, based on a, a different um, nightclub shooting. Uh, the uh, the allegation was that they used Twitter in order to communicate among each other and and plan. Um, and so, but yeah, both are, are saying, are basically saying there are certain things that the services do for everybody, right? They they provide ways for everybody to meet and plan, and they provide suggestions, recommendations for everybody, no matter what their likes or dislikes might be. And can they be held liable for terrorism acts um, because certain users, you know, um, uh, the allegation goes, use these and the resulted in these awful tragedies. Yeah, and and what what's interesting is that you, this content promotion, right? So, do you know if it, if at least in in Gonzales, did the did the terrorists ever acknowledge that they watched any of these YouTube videos? I I, I don't I don't think so. I don't even think that's an allegation. The complaint, um, and it's it's you know the I I think the idea is that the the complaint alleged that the sort of the general buildup and structure of of the of the entity and, and those who made the attack sort of were were fermented by the suggestion algorithm. I, I don't I don't know whether they made specific allegations that the actual perpetrators you know, watch the videos. I actually don't know if they would have had to have made that allegation. Um, but it's true. I mean I I think there's a lot of uh, you there's the Section 230 issue is so whether you should have to defend the lawsuit at all. And then there's the question of if you're going to defend it, you know, are, is this is the service provided and the tragic result is there just is it too attenuated um, for to hold someone legally liable? I think that's a question both under the statute, JASTA, which is the statute that allows these civil lawsuits, as well as under the First Amendment. Um, to what extent does just being a, as a communications services provider, to what extent um does the First Amendment protect your ability to to enable other people to communicate? Yeah, on, yeah, on I, that note, as I just remember for a second, on that note, um, the First Amendment is obviously an American uh, thing. How does this work if the company is in a different country? We wouldn't have this this kind of um, uh, lawsuit going on. It would be something else, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, so it, and, and, and Section 230, this idea that um, for most for many claims, for a lot of legal claims that online intermediaries are immune 
from when the liability is founded on the speech of others um, is is a you know is an American concept as well. We don't in other parts of the world there are different schemes for intermediary liability. Um, and let me just tell you right now that no one is happy with any of them. So it's not like <laughs> as much as people complain about Section 230, um, there's not like a model out there in the world that is addressing everybody's concerns, right? This is a this is a difficult area. But yeah, it would have it, it mean and the statutes are uniquely American statutes. So uh, I, we, you have a much different result if this was heard in a um, in a different in a different court, this this does really present sort of several intersections of, of um, you know, things that are that are fairly unique to American law. Yeah, yeah, and what was fascinating to me too is that you know as this case wound its way up through the appellate process, started in I think it was Northern District of California, and then went into the Ninth Circuit, and then into the into the Supreme Court, and you know as it hit the Ninth Circuit, the you know, the, the big platforms won. But there were there was some dissent among the ranks there, and and those dissenting opinions I I thought were were fascinating in that, and and I think this is the reason why the case got to the Supreme Court is because in as much as it's about content and it's about publication, it's about how far Section Two Thirty can go to protect these platforms, and and in particular does it shield them from the consequences of their algorithms, right? And so these algorithms that are content promotion algorithms, right? You know, people, they, they upload tons and tons of video to, to YouTube every single day. It's like every minute or something, there's 500 hours of videos, uh, you know, going up to YouTube, which is, you know, it's extraordinary. But to recommend that video, those videos rather, to other people, you have to have this content promotion algorithm. And what, and, and here's where I want to push back for a second, David, and get your views on this, because we have a lot of instances in the past where we, we can point to specific problems. We can look at places like Myanmar and we can say, God damn, there were some real big problems. You know, digital violence spilled over into physical violence in places like Myanmar and Burma. We know that, that this has happened in, in places like East Africa. We've seen election interference, possibly even resulting in the election of Donald Trump in the United States of America in, in 2016. And so we know that these algorithms can be used and abused, and we know that they can have these foreseeable consequences that are absolutely horrible. So in a sense, should – well, let me also add one more premise to this argument before I come to some kind of question. But who created these algorithms? They, they were created by these technology platforms, right? We're not talking about you know, some kind of bulletin board system you know, where somebody's just uploading content and others are going and looking at it and curating it. They're pushing it out. They're promoting this content, and the big platforms created these algorithms, so if there are these foreseeable consequences that are harmful, not just to one people, but let's say to entire populations, is it not going too far to have Section 230 provide them this measure of immunity? Well, so I, I think there's there's two questions in there. One is what should the law be? Like what if Congress is going to amend or rewrite 230, what should it do? And then there's a separate question, which is what the court 
considered yesterday of what does the current law, how is it actually interpreted? And those are those are a bit of separate things. But it, we can even just talk about this from a policy perspective, right? I mean, what what do we want? Where do we want liability uh, to be placed? And and it's true with any immunity. You know, any immunity just means that someone under some situation where they might otherwise be legally liable, they're not going to be liable. So that's what immunity means. It doesn't mean you know, Section 230 and other immunities apply both to good lawsuits and bad ones, right? I mean, and so they protect people from meritless lawsuits, but they also shield them from lawsuits that otherwise might have might have had merit. So there's always going to be a trade-off. Whenever we have immunity in the law, and we have lots of them in many different forms, we're always making a trade-off. There's some people who aren't going to be protected, who are going to lose legal relief that they otherwise would have been entitled to. So our question is, what are we gaining by having it? And and the decision that Congress made in 1996 was that the internet, given how interactive it was and how open it was for all users and how how ungated it was, was going to be unworkable under our present system, which allow which and under which people otherwise were liable if they if they they called republished what someone else said, you know. So if um, if if you said if you were just speaking with someone and you and you said, well, Alex told me X and and what Alex statement was harmful, then I as repeating that could you know, could I would bear legal liability. It was thought that well that just won't work under the internet, right? I mean we have we have all these layers of intermediaries that that push people's information along. We have all these people speaking. Uh, the volume of this stuff is so great, um, and so and so they made the decision to create the immunity. Um, and again, what that means is that there's going to be some harms that don't get that don't get addressed. So um, we do have to look at well, what is what are the alternatives to doing this? How can we still preserve an internet that's fairly accessible to people without a ton of money and without a ton of technological expertise? If we care about user generated content. How do what legal protections do we give people who who help distribute user generated content? Because under the law without 230, they had very, very little um, protection. So if we want to have user generation generate, how do we do that? And so, I mean, those, I think, are important questions. Um, I, I, I find that I looking at that. I actually the immunity system is is a really good one, is a really good system. Um, and I don't know of all the ones I see around the world that there's one that's working better. There's not a one that really decreases the harms as much. And we, we start to see very drastic uh, restrictions on speech. You know, but with that, too, you know, one, one thing, you know, this was a it, it's fairly old law, you know, as, as, uh, as technology goes. I mean, you know, we're at the time the, the Section 230 was passed, you know, we were talking about. Websites like AOL and um, you know where interactive computer networks like Prodigy and things like that that needed to be promoted and 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 really you know we were talking about the evolution of the internet without even having been able to conceive of something like a social media platform at this point or, or and, and the the massive amounts of data that would be passing through these interactive computer networks these platforms and so. I think there's a big difference, too, between what we considered to be within the realm of the term publication back uh, you know, at, the, at, at the passage of, of, of Section 230 and what we, we consider publication now, right? Because, you know, this is 
protecting protecting essentially uh, platforms from being considered publishers, right? Because it, you know, it, and, and maybe that's something you, you could go into a bit too, David. You know, why is the New York Times, for instance, treated differently than, let's say, Facebook or Meta? or Google, right? And because I, I think at this point now, when you have these content promotion algorithms, are we not stretching the definition of what we are protecting by virtue of immunity from, from being considered a publisher? So there's, there's so publisher is a term of art under the law, and it's a little bit of a circular term of art because it's definitely it's 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 essentially the term you use when you're going to impose liability on somebody <laughs> when you're treating that to treat them as a publisher means to treat them as the original speaker uh, creator of the content and so in some ways it's it's the conclusion and and so uh, the con and and in the way this arose in the common law uh, is that you were you could be considered a publisher even if you weren't the original speaker right because you republished somebody else's statement you either you, you wrote it down or you took something you found written and you passed along to somebody um and so and, and and so this was so there were all these cases to decide whether you know a courier was a publisher because what they did was they carried someone's some message to another one's even though they didn't create it at all um or whether you know whether books or books booksellers uh, or newsstands were publishers, or if you had a, if you had a newspaper and someone you allowed letters to the editor, whether you were a publisher of those or an editor, even if you didn't write a word of that, or you ran advertisements. So, so the idea that you know, saying someone was a publisher meant that they were going to have legal responsibility for somebody else's content. So what Section 230 says is you shall not be a publisher. You not, the, these things shall not be bear liability as a publisher was, was meant to counteract that. The New York Times has Section 230 publication for, uh, protection for its online publication, the way anybody who publishes online does as well. So, if, you know, so you look at NewYorkTimes.com, which you know, publishes a lot of content, that gets Section 230 protection, as does WBAI.com. Um, and you know, and when Airbnb has a print magazine, that doesn't get Section 230 protection. So it, it so the protection doesn't flow to certain user you know, to certain people and not to others. Like it doesn't just like only tech companies you know, get the benefits of get you know, get the protection of Section 230. Anybody who puts information on the internet. Um, that they didn't write themselves gets the protection of Section 230. And so um, I, I do think, although although social media sort of didn't exist back then, actually the, the case in terms of development is much more compelling for immunity than it was even back in 1996, just because the volume of decisions that online intermediaries have to make, the volume of user uh, user content that flows through them is so much greater now. Like if we thought it was unmanageable for Prodigy or CompuServe to have to vet every single piece of you know, post before it showed up on the site, that's even harder to do now. And plus, because there, because we've seen layers of other intermediaries build up, it's actually much more easier to have to create your own service now. Like. Prodigy or CompuServe then, which still required a fair bit of sophistication, even to use like a bulletin board back then required some bit of technical, technological know-how. Yeah, that's right. I Maybe mean, you're, you're dialing into you know 
somebody's BBS and your 2400 baud modem. I mean, those, those were the days, right? And those were, those were the days from which the Communications Decency Act were born. And I, like, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you, and, and, and I, I want to thank you for doing what you do for the EFF. And, you know, I, I pushed back so hard only because I know you can take it. And that, um, you know, look, we all agree, I think, that, that Section 230 here is a really, really important piece of legislation that allowed the Internet to flourish in many ways. But I do think, um, and, I, and I hope you're right, that the, that the court kicks this, this case down. But it does seem like this is something that, you know, may go down with some kind of mandate for Congress to pick up the ball. And we might see some massive changes uh, about CDA Section 230 um, over the next few years. What do you, do you do? You think that's a possibility, David? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, I, for the past as long as I can remember, Congress has want. There's been a lot of calls to amend or tinker with Section 230. Some of which are sort of small fixes. Some of which are wholesale, you know, sort of redos of of the liability scheme. And there's already, you know, pending many, many efforts. Um, and I do think that no matter what the court does, um, there will be a lot of uh, congressional efforts. I, and I do think you'll see, at least from several justices, um, in, you know, basically ad- admonishing Congress that if they don't like the way this plays out, then then they should, you know, go and try and fix it. It's just uh, politically, it's, it's proved to be a politically difficult thing to do because it seems like across the political spectrum, people are unhappy with different parts of the law, and there's not there's not really agreement over 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 how over what to fix. So, but yes, I think we'll see very very active uh, Congress uh, attention to to intermediary liability schemes. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm gonna call it now. I think that Justice Kavanaugh is gonna write the opinion in the Gonzalez case. I'll call it. I, I might be wrong. Oh, I was surprised by by some of his action, uh, you know, intelligent comments, um, things that, that didn't involve beer. Uh, but once again, you know, joining us tonight was David Green, who is senior staff attorney and the civil liberties director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, aside from working for one of our favorite organizations, David is also part of the steering committee for the Free Expression Network and an adjunct professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law. David, we can't thank you enough for what you do and, and, and being part of the EFF and for joining us tonight. Will you stick around for the rest of the show? Sure, I can I can hang out for a bit. Fantastic. I'll pass it back to you, E. Okay. And, uh, well, let me just ask David, are there any uh, links or, or contact info you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, you could always uh, – everything EFF does is on our website, EFF.org. Um, and there's actually, if you're interested in Section 230 particularly, we just uh, earlier this week or maybe late last week, you posted sort of a whole primer explainer on Section 230. We have a, a ton of resources about um, intermediary liability. And even if you're interested in sort of comparative intermediary liability schemes, uh, you know, in terms of other other international legal systems, you can find those on our site as well. Awesome. EFF.org, uh, by the way, is is the website again. Uh, on uh, WBAI.org is our website, not WBAI.com. That goes nowhere. <laughs> I just I just checked. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, maybe we should get that one. Um, but please support WBAI uh, as much as you can. Uh, go to give2wbai.org and uh, pledge massive amounts because that's what we need right now to keep surviving in this uh, crazy world of media and uh, and speech and all that. Uh, you can also call 212-209-2950 and pledge on that phone line. 
please uh, mention Off the Hook when you do. And uh, continue to listen to WBAI 99.5 FM in New York City, somehow broadcasting at full power uh, since 1960 without having a single commercial. Hey, um, we had some interesting news over the past uh, few days. Actually, it's not a surprise, but some of you might have seen this on your uh, Twitter accounts. A big message saying you must remove text message two-factor authentication. <laughs> yes. You know, that, that thing that uh, everyone has been telling you to do, when our Twitter is telling you to undo it, because only people who pay for it can use it. Only Twitter Blue subscribers can use the text message two-factor authentication method. According to their their site, um, it'll take just a few minutes to remove it. <laughs> it's like the exact opposite of what, what we were told before. Yeah, it's fast and it's easy to get rid of it. You can still use the authentication app and security key methods. Yes, there are still ways, but this is just kind of kind of bizarre. Uh, and especially the um, the very last sentence here: to avoid losing access to Twitter, remove text message two factor authentication by March nineteenth, twenty twenty three. So yeah, you could find yourself locked out because Elon Musk wants to uh, make some money uh, with uh, with Twitter Blue. Um, it is the latest cash generating idea or an attempt to anyway. Um, basically, uh, as of March 20th, 2023, only Twitter Blue subscribers will be able to use text messaging as their two-factor authentication method to verify their username and password when they log into a new device. Uh, non-subscribers will still be able to enable two-factor authentication using either an authentication app like Google Authenticator or physical security key. You're shaking your head in disbelief, Kyle. Uh, do you not approve of this this latest move by by Elon Musk? I I just think it's really silly. Like most people, I mean, who who is like going to this like level of detail? Like going through their settings and just. They want to go ahead and do some busy work for for Twitter, you know. Their their motivation. I don't know anyone who would desire this over the free alternatives. I guess is is what perplexes me. Well, I mean, a number of people are talked into doing it, uh, so uh, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure they just have it installed and have forgotten about it, and it's just there. And I just worry that a lot of people will find themselves locked out as of uh, March. So it's a courtesy. 23rd. Before they hijack this and 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 turn it into a money making feature, mm-hmm. so this is like them being proactive against people who would be really put off and upset after it's okay. So and I if, thought they, they they needed them to like do some work before they could using, add this feature. Using SMS though uh, to uh, uh, do two factor authentication, it, it's it's the easiest way to do it. Um, it's it's basically because all you need is your phone. And you get a message on your phone saying, "Hey, is this you?" You say, "Yeah," you know, and and that's that's it. All the I people think, who do that now, uh, if they don't remove that or if they don't pay for Twitter Blue, uh, they will find themselves locked out when they next try to log in. Okay, so so a scenario where you're not using a smartphone, this allows you to uh, to bypass that. Well, this, no, it's a, it's going to your smartphone. SMS text message is going to your smartphone. Well. Not necessarily a smart. Uh, it may not necessarily be a smartphone, mm-hmm. um, and that could, could a, have a value. That yeah. could have value. Yeah, I hear the the youths are are really big into the the clamshell. Oh, flip phones will be, are, They're coming back. Yeah. Yes, uh, Rob, go ahead. Yeah, um, for for those of you who were using Twitter, uh, I want to say around four or five year, uh, four or five months ago, rather, when uh, 
it changed uh, hands and ownership, and the new owner fired a bunch of people, including a bunch of people who worked on two-factor authentication. And the th- the two-factor authentication in Twitter broke, leaving a lot of people locked out of their accounts. And it was only people who were able to get in through a login that they happened to have sitting open on a machine somewhere and disable two-factor authentication who could get into Twitter at all at that point. So the new Twitter has already demonstrated that it is unable to keep this uh, this functionality going, and now they want to charge money for it, which is hilarious. But it's also, like, you would think it would be in Twitter's interest to um, maintain the security of, of uh, its users, but now they want to pay you to lock the front door of your house, or, or they want you to pay to lock the front door of your house effectively, and this is entertaining. Well, the house analogy in regards to a Twitter account is, is amusing, but I, I see the point. I, I definitely do. But, you know, what's, what's also crazy here is that um, this is seen as, as monumentally stupid, but guess who's emulating it? That's right, the people at Facebook, because now they will allow you to become what they consider verified, legitimate, if you pay them. And this is true on Instagram. This is true on, on, on uh, Facebook. Uh, and it's, it's, it's basically something that, uh, Elon Musk started a few months ago when, when, uh, he introduced the Twitter blue. You can get a little blue check mark if you pay for it and be indistinguishable from those people who, you know, are, are bona fide celebrities or have been confirmed in other ways. Um, but you can completely lie. In fact, people were lying about being Elon Musk and having a blue check mark and it caused no end of, of heartache. Um, but now similar things in Facebook, if you pay what, I think $15, some outrageous amount, 50, who would pay $15 a month to be on Facebook? I mean, they should be paying us. I'm trying to get off of Facebook. It's really difficult. It's really hard. Gila, go ahead. Well, no, that was what I was going to say, that they are building upon it by doing the same thing, but making you pay more money for it. And I think there are even different price tiers for Facebook versus Instagram, which I found absolutely fascinating. (laughs) Um, I think Instagram is more expensive, which is fine because Instagram is more annoying and that's another barrier to participation. But I'm I'm baffled by the idea of changing these things to paid services and what that will accomplish, what that will do to the user base. Um, you know, I, I just want to see my high school friends, kids. That's really all I want. Well, maybe you should call them then, you know. When 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 did we uh, allow these big major companies to control our social lives? You know, it used to be you could use the internet to, uh, you know, to connect with people on your own terms, email, web pages, even instant messaging. I miss that. Yeah, remember the days when you could go into IRC and see all your friends, right? Those those were the days, right? Well, you can still do so that. Have, you can still go into IRC. In fact, we have IRC.2600.net. You can go there right now and see right. all, all kinds of characters, friends. all kinds yeah, of and, and see all your friends. But look, I, I want to push back on this for one second, though, because I, I think that either there may be some rational basis for Twitter's decision here. Those SMS text messages for two-factor authentication can actually – get expensive at some kind of massive scale that you're doing it. But it raises the question, though, that why not just automatically disable this for all of your accounts? I mean, we're people that are not blue check marks that have this enabled. Why not just disable it instead of trying to lock people out of their accounts, you know, when their session expires after whatever that arbitrary date is? Um, you know, it, it is much more secure to use some kind of authenticator app and I think that's what Kyle was, was driving at, which is that, you know, that's the type of authentication that you can perform on a smartphone. If you tie your two-factor authentication code to something like the Google Authenticator app, that's much more secure because 
your two-factor authentication code is not subject to SIM jacking. If somebody jacks your SIM card, meaning they steal your SIM card or have it reissued to them, and then can intercept your text messages, they could then get into your Twitter account. You can't do that with a, a Google Authenticator app or, or some kind of software-based application. Last word has to go to Gila. We, we have to head out. Um, all I was going to say is that it's to people who want – they're trying to sell a worthless product to people who want to look smarter. They are selling snake oil to make people feel better about themselves, and they're going to make money doing it. And we're the product, and yet somehow we're still expected to pay. Amazing. Hey, uh, that's going to do it for us here on this edition of Off the Hook. Again, please support WBAI. Give to WBAI.org or 212-209-2950. Write to us, O-T-H at 2600.com. And if you haven't gotten enough of us, you can uh, tune in to uh, YouTube in about eight minutes. Follow the link on the 2600.com webpage or just go to channel 2600 on YouTube. You can participate in Off the Hook Overtime and uh, call us even and be part of the conversation. Thanks to David Green from the Electronic Frontier Foundation for joining us tonight. Everybody else, we will see you in two weeks. Good night.